Welcome to New City, guys. How you guys doing? Yeah? Was that, was that too loud? How, how's our volume level? We good? We're good? All right, cool. Man, I'm glad for the love of God. I was reminded about it recently um, when I almost died. Uh, we, it seems like every time I preach, I have a story about how I almost died. But um, there's this website called HiddenSanDiego.com. If you haven't been there, you should definitely check it out. It's um, loaded with really cool places in San Diego that very few people know about. Um, so it's probably a bad idea to, idea to announce that, actually, because all these really cool isolated places are going to be overrun. But um, there's this place called the Rum Runner's Cave. Has anybody heard of the Rum Runner's Cave? Exactly. See, Sunset Cliffs. It's hidden over there somewhere. In fact, the guy that published the article stopped telling people where it was unless you paid him a fee. And so I wasn't about to pay him a fee. I'm going to go find the Rum Runner's Cave by myself on my Sabbath. So um, as any good adventurer would do, with my iPhone in hand for Instagram shots, of course. So I, uh, I get down, I climb down this cliff over by Sunset Cliffs. I find this beach, and, and somebody tells me there's some giant caves around that corner. And it goes out into the water, and so I'm like, oh, man. So I, I'm creeping up. I'm dressed pretty much like this. Um, which is probably not the best adventurer gear, you know. And uh, I climb up on this, this rock, and I'm about 10 feet over the water, and there's all these submerged, jagged rocks, and, and I'm on this slippery shelf, and the waves are crashing into me. And I realize that there's this whole other beach around this other side of the, the, the cove there. And, I, oh, man, I need to get over there, but it's going to take me another half hour to track back and climb back up that cliff. And I look up, and I see this rope up here, and I'm like, well, hey, there's a rope there. People obviously have come up and down here before. So uh, I put my iPhone in my pocket, and I start climbing up the cliff, and I get the rope, and I get, I get about 30 feet up, and I'm looking down at the jagged rocks below me, and I realize that I've gotten myself into a position where I literally can't move. I can't go up because the shelf like, is chest high, and then it's still a steep, a steep grade, and there's nothing to grab onto. And the rope's below me, but there's no way to, like, because I'm, I'm, like, hugging this cliff. And so my legs start shaking. <laughs> and my wife is parked in a car way over at Sunset Cliffs, and she's doing her homework. And I have nobody to call to, nothing to do. And in this moment, I realize that this is probably the dumbest reason to ever get a, like, an Instagram photo. I'm not even getting paid for this photo. What am I doing here? So I, I scramble up the cliff and my hands are slipping as I go and I start falling backward and by the grace of God alone, I end up laying on top of that shelf and just like hugging the cliff, <laughs> shaking. And um, I actually ended up getting some good pictures. I, I went back and told my wife about it. I was like, babe, I found this amazing hidden beach. You gotta see it. I almost died. And she said, you almost died and you want me to come see it? Really? <laughs> Really, babe, for Instagram, was it worth it? That was, her, that was her question to me. And I realized, like, some things in life are more important than others, right? Instagram shot, broken leg, right? Broken neck. This is, there's no balance there, right? The, the Instagram shot is not nearly as important as, you know, my health. And so what is the most important thing in life? That's a question I want to ask you today. I want you to think about. 
as you measure all the things in your life that some things have a, a measure of importance, some things take higher priority, what is, what is the most important thing in your life? I'm going to read a quick scripture. This isn't our main text, but I just, just want to read it real quick. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus is talking, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many other mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If someone were to ask you what the most important thing in life is based on that passage, what would you tell them? When you look at that passage, what do you think the most important thing in life is? To know God. Relationship with God. Another, another verse elsewhere says, Jesus is talking and he says, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Walking with God is the most important thing in life. Knowing him, relationship. But how is that possible? How is it possible for us, little old me, to walk with the God of the universe? What does it look like? And I'm not coming to you as a professional by any means today. I'm coming to you as a fellow struggler in this thing called the walk of faith, walking with God. And I've tried so hard. I've disciplined myself to read scriptures Knuckle up, buckle down, you know, try to wake up early and pray and get in all the mechanics of what it means to walk with God. The old Sunday school song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Is remember that one? It's my personal favorite. But I fall back into these old rhythms in my life, and I end up ignoring God. You guys ever do that? End up asking my friends for advice before I ask God. I treat him like a cosmic genie sometimes. I come to him and my prayers become asking when I need stuff or praying for others. And, and, and I wonder, like, how do we get here where our walk with God boils down to a few dry mechanics and, and things that we do? The better question maybe is how do we get from here to there to a place where we have a thriving relationship with God? If you want that more than anything, this is for you this morning. So we're going to dig into Hebrews chapter 11, and through, through part of it. And based on the text, we're going to talk about four things. And that is, if, if you want to walk with God, it takes four things. It takes relational trust. It takes loving communication. Faithful action. And those will be up there for a while. And gospel motivation. Gospel motivation. So that's what we're going to tackle. Will you uh, just join me in prayer? Father... I pray that you would just speak to every one of our hearts today, that you would draw us wherever we're at in our walk with you, whether we have a non-existent walk or we've been walking with you for 30 years. I pray that today you would take it deeper, draw us closer. Thank you so much for what Zach preached last week, that wonderful sermon on walking in community, encouraging and admonishing one another, helping one another with patience. That's one way our faith is fleshed out horizontally in community, but today we're going to discuss the vertical expression of our faith, walking with you, and I pray that you would
do a work in our hearts that words fail to do at times. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that things which are seen, what is seen, was not made out of things that are visible. I want you to think about this. How would you define faith based on that passage? I remember I was in Bible school, it was like 15 years ago, and I had to preach a sermon on faith. So preaching from this passage, and I realized that that word, there's this word substance. In this translation it says assurance, but that word substance was the Greek word hypostasis. And I was like, ooh, so faith is the hypostasis, which means to stand under. So I preached this really elaborate, too long of a sermon on to, to my Bible class and, and just was like, faith will stand under you, faith will carry you. When Simon Peter went to step out of the boat, it wasn't the water that held him up, it was his faith. His faith stood under him. And I just like, it was a Pentecostal Bible college. So I was getting amens too, man. People were with it. They were feeling it. And uh, basically the, the premise of that was like, you need more faith. That was, that was my whole, like, thesis. And afterward, the uh, professor gently walked up, and uh, his remarks were, well, Vince, thank you for complicating faith for all of us. <laughs> it's just what we needed. And he proceeded to demystify faith, and he said, you know, the, the word for faith in the Greek is just this word pistis, or pistis, which means trust. It's just relational trust in God. And it wasn't Simon Peter's, like, mystical force of faith that held him up. It was the object of his faith. The, the power wasn't in his faith. The power was in Jesus, who he was walking in a relationship with, right? Jesus held him up. And, and so I want to I ask you guys today, as we read this, to think about your trusting relationship with God. Start viewing faith through that lens. And that's what we'll see in this chapter. Example after example of people who trusted God, who had a vibrant, growing relationship with him, and it showed up in their lives. Verses 4 through 6. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So he's talking about Abel's faith showing up by in his life by he brings God his best. And that'll preach right there, but that's not the sermon topic today. He loves God and he honors him by bringing him nothing less than his best. And then the author of Hebrews goes on. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he had this testimony or he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is faith? So, so if faith is not some mystical substance. It's simply trusting God. Look at what the Hebrews writer says. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you see that? Who's he talking about there? 
He's talking about Enoch, right? He's talking about Enoch, and he points out that faith is relational, just like Enoch walked with God, and it's about drawing near to God, believing in him, even though you haven't seen him, and trusting that as you seek him, you will receive the reward of seeking him. And what's the reward? Him, a relationship with God. And Enoch is just a weird character in Scripture. There's not a lot written about him. He shows up in Genesis and in Hebrews and in Jude. And he's one of Scripture's most mysterious characters. Why? Anybody know? He never died. That's weird, right? That's a weird thing. He walked with God. He pleased God. And what? And he was not. For God took him. God loved Enoch, and Enoch loved God. And they had this relationship where they walked together. He enjoyed God more than anything, and God took him. It's, it's, it's like, like what, what kind of relationship was that? How many of you would like to have a relationship with God like that? Where God basically says of Enoch, I love this guy so much the world can't have him. I'm just going to bring him home to me right now. That's amazing. This guy loved God more than anything. He had a relational trust with God that drove him to, to our second point, which is loving communication. Let me ask you guys a question. What do you love? I'll tell you, lamp. <laughs> Ramiro loves lamp. Remember that scene, Ron Burgundy? He's driving and he throws his burrito out the window and it hits the biker. Anybody? And the bike is Jack Black, and he spills, spills his motorcycle out, and he jumps on and he goes, man, you just destroyed the only thing I love. Like, and he's looking at Ron Burgundy, and he's like, what do you love? And he says, I love poetry <laughs> and good scotch and Baxter here. And he goes, all right. Well, he grabs Baxter, and he says, I'm doing this, and he kicks the dog over the bridge. <laughs> it's like horrible. Um, <laughs> Thinking, Baxter, in a glass case of emotion, right? But seriously, like, like, what do you love? We know what Ron Burgundy loves. What do you love? Is, is God at the top of that list? Is the fruit of your love for God showing up in your life? Here's, here's a hard question for you I want you to think about. Would you be like Enoch, happy to leave everything in this world behind in order to be with God? Think about it. What, what things in your life do you love more than him? Nancy and I just celebrated our 13-year dating anniversary. Dating, dating anniversary. We look for reasons to celebrate. We just like to party. And I love Nancy. She's my babe. I, uh, I, uh, she's not even in here, so this isn't scoring me points right now. <laughs> I couldn't imagine life without her. And um, yeah, I married her, and then... We found all about the uh, happily ever after thing. You guys know about that, right? <laughs> Hollywood lies. <laughs> Fairy tales are liars. And uh, I mean, they never show you past the honeymoon, right? It's, they never show you when Sleeping Beauty and Prince Charming come back from the honeymoon and go back to work, right? And how uncharmingly he leaves the toilet seat up and how when she doesn't get her sleep, her beauty sleep, you know, she starts showing up with wrinkles and weight gain and all that stuff. It doesn't show all of that, right? It doesn't. And they discover all these things about each other. 
Relationships are beautiful, but they are hard work, right? I mean, we just spent this weekend, several of the couples in the church, doing this art of marriage thing, which was awesome, and talking about all of the difficult work that goes into having a wonderful, healthy relationship. There's growing and changing and becoming new, hopefully better people. Dying to the old, taking on new life together, dying to your selfish ways and learning to serve and bless and hope and love and trust. Sound familiar? Yeah. In fact, it sounds a lot like the Christian walk, doesn't it? It's amazing to me. You see God over and over through Scripture use relationships, especially marriage, as a central metaphor to show people what it's like to walk with him. Over and over through Scripture, from Eden and, and his covenantal uh, declaration to Adam and Eve about what, how they're to live and what he's going to do, down to, down to Abraham and him telling Abraham who he calls to leave his father's country and follow him. Um, and, and he says, if you will do this and live this way, I will be your God and I will do this. It's this relational, personal, covenantal thing, this, this, this God, the way he interacts with us. Abraham's known as the friend of God. In Israel, when, when God calls Abraham's children up from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and leads them out into the wilderness at the foot of a mountain where he, in essence, exchanges vows with them, he says, I'm the God of your forefathers who brought you out of Egypt, and I want that same relationship with you. God is a covenant God. He's a relational God, a God who desires the best for us. And you know what the best for us is? Walking with him, experiencing the abundant life that comes from walking with the creator of the universe, to revolve our lives around him. Faith is like a relationship. It's like a marriage. And it's not boiled down to the basic mechanics. I mean, when you hear walk with God, what things do you think of? Immediately, our brain goes to certain activities normally, right? Like, well, read your Bible and pray Go to church on Sunday. And, and, I mean, what if we approached marriage like that? What is marriage about? I just, you know, like, like what's his name in, in Anchorman? What is love? Ron, tell us. Like, what is, what is marriage about? And somebody says, well, it's like it's a kiss and a conversation and, and kids, right? No, it's so much more than that. There's all these unspoken things, all the things in between, things that someone on the outside misses, the memories, experiencing each other, sharing life. But think about something. Let's get to the heart of this. Many of us allow our relationship with God to get boiled down to mechanics and lose its romance, lose its sense of wonder and joy and fulfillment. It becomes about us and what we get out of it. We want God to revolve around our lives. We don't want to dance around him. We don't want to surrender to him or follow him or walk with him where he's going. We want him to follow us. In this anniversary, we had a funny anniversary. It was great, but imagine what if the whole reason behind planning the anniversary and coming up with all the fun stuff we did, what if I just did it in this mechanical way to like, make sure like, if I do these things, A plus B plus C, then she will have to love me. Right? She won't divorce me then. Right? She, will, she will stay with me. I'll, I'll get favors. Any reason any reason that I had to plan the anniversary and to love her, any reason other than wanting her for her, for who she is, any other reason is actually an attempt to use her to get what I really want, right? It's not loving her. It's loving other things through her. It's not loving my wife. 
And it's that way for many of us with God. It's this one-sided relationship that we have with God. We, we settle for it. It's like we fell in love with God. But then we got busy with life. Other priorities climbed the totem pole, and we began to walk with God for what we get out of it. We miss out on the joy of knowing God, of, of enjoying the God of the universe. We miss out on the real thing and settle for a counterfeit. You guys, you guys tracking? And why not? I mean, don't we do that with our romantic relationships, relationships kind of, in a sense? Don't people fall in and out of love and lose their feelings? How many of you have lost, how many married people do we have? How many of you at one point or another have somewhat lost your feelings for your spouse or felt them dampened? Anybody? Come on, honest dampened, no? Just, just, oh, how many of you have not felt as strongly the amount of love that you did on that day when you said, I do? Yeah. This morning, I, I felt that. I, I, this morning I prayed, how can I preach this? Preach this about walking with God when my heart feels so numb. There's a confession for you. My heart feels so numb. And God reminded me gently that the words my dad said when I got married, my dad told me, he said, son, love's a choice. All right? Because you're, if it's an emotion, then it's going to be gone. But if love is a choice, if you could choose, if you continue to choose love, then the emotions will come back. And they'll disappear, they'll fade, they'll get angry with each other. I'm not feeling a lot of love in this moment right now. But the love will come back if you continue to choose to love this person. Because when you come back from the honeymoon, right, and she fell asleep, and she wakes up and she's got broccoli in her teeth from the night before, and her hair's all matted, right? It's, you look at her and you're like, whoa, hey, who are you? You don't feel as much love in that moment. Maybe, Right? And ladies, I could go down a list of that, like of all the things that you guys see in us and that drive you crazy about us. But love is a choice. Emotions disappear and reappear, but if you continue to choose love, you give yourself, it always comes back. The emotional love we experience, it grows stronger. It builds more character. Love, one person said, love is like a fine wine. It's better with age. And it doesn't appeal to children. That's, what, that's the other part of that quote. Most children. I think that's why in the scriptures, over and over, God calls his people back to their first love. Trusting him, walking with him, being faithful. What is the real thing, the real walk with God? Have you experienced it? If you're experiencing relational trust and it's warming your heart and growing your loving communication, you will have the third thing, and that's faithful action. And that's what this chapter's full of. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but not everyone who does things for God does it from a healthy place. Not everyone who does things for God does it as a result of faith. Because you can have all the signs on the outside, right? Going to gatherings with the church, praying over your meals and your needs, feeding the poor, giving God back part of your income. And on the outside, you can seem like you have it all together. The Pharisees of Jesus' day did. I stood there in Israel one time as we stood on the Temple Mount and looked over uh, at the hill that was covered in these beautiful sepulchers and tombs. And the sun shone from the, from the west 
down toward the east, and, and it was hitting those, and they were brilliant and bright and beautiful and polished on the outside. You're like, man, I've never seen a prettier graveyard in my life. It's gorgeous. And Jesus was standing probably in a really similar place as he talked to the Pharisees and pointed over there, and he said, guys, your faith is a lot like that. It's beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of death and rot and dry, dry bones. And oftentimes, people in the faith are more like Pharisees, where your faith has given way to what was once alive and vibrant and a walk with God has become this thing that's full of death and decay and emptiness and meaninglessness. Or all of those things, those beautiful acts of worship, can be rooted in a fragrant and fresh faith-filled walk, a, a thriving relationship with Jesus that empowers and gives life to everything you say and do. We see this all throughout the story of God. In Hebrews 11, the writer just goes through person after person. He talks about Abel, and he talks about Enoch, and he talks about Noah. If you guys have seen the movie, you know the story. I mean, it's exactly biblical word for word. Uh, it's called Sarcasm for the Podcast. Okay, just in case anybody listening thinks we believe that. Right, but what does Noah's faith build, uh, like lead him to do? Does it result in him just saying, yeah, I love God? No, it leads to action in his life, doesn't it? He builds a boat in the middle of dry land. That takes faith. Abraham, who is set for life, his dad's uh, basically family makes idols in a, in a culture that worships all kinds of idols, and he's set, yet God told him to leave his comfort, leave everything he knows, and go out to a land that God will show him one day. He doesn't even know where he's going. Over and over through this chapter, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, Rahab, and I agree with the author here, as he says, if we can put the verse on the screen, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, and David and Samuel and the prophets who, through their faith, their trusting walk with the maker, what did they do? Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness came mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins and sh of sheep and, sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. How would you like that on your tombstone as your epitaph? Mm. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves in the earth, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. These people are, are full of faith. They walked with God and they simply put their trust in him, and he led them to do things that they would never have done on their own. And we read about them, we tell stories about them, and draw picture books for our kids about them. Why? What defined them? What led them to do these things? What empowered them to live such extraordinary lives? And the writer of Hebrews points out it was, it was their God, their, their walk with their God, their faith-filled, trust, trusting relationship with the God who spoke the world into existence. 
they were defined by him and empowered by him. And they stand before us as a legacy and a testimony. And then he goes on in Hebrews 12. And we'll wrap up with these two verses for the last point, gospel motivation. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people we just read about, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so easily and closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how does he tell us to run? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If I'm 100% honest today, I get a little bit jealous of Enoch. But what the gospel says here is amazing. Even in my times of, of failure and frustration in my walk, even in times when I forget to pray or I don't prioritize God, this passage gives me hope. And I'll tell you why. What the gospel says here is that Jesus is the true and the better Enoch. That Jesus walked with the Father in perfect intimacy that Enoch could only dream of. That, that Jesus loved the Father perfectly and submitted to him in every way. And he could have escaped death like Enoch, right? He could have because he was perfect. But instead of escaping death's clutches, he ran straight towards death, our greatest enemy, our greatest fear. And he allowed death to do its worst to him. Why? For you and for I. For the two of us, the several of us, so that we could have the same intimacy with God that Jesus had. And today, you and I can have a walk with God, listen to this, with a greater intimacy than, than even Enoch had. You don't have to settle for a limp-along relationship with God because you've been given the righteousness of Christ. Did you hear what the writer of Hebrews said? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The shame and nakedness that Adam and Eve felt when they sinned. The shame that we feel from our sin and brokenness and things we've done, things others have done to us. He took it all on on the cross. And forever, like that, that wedge that was coming between us and God, where we couldn't have a deep relationship. He took all of that and he got it out of the way. He stood in your stead so that now you can stand in his reconciled perfectly to God. Is that good news? If you're a believer, you have the relationship your heart longs for. It's available to you. It's not based on how good you are. It's not based on how well you keep your disciplines. If you're not a believer, you can experience it today. And, and Jesus did this, right? Because of what he's done for you and I, we don't have to walk with God perfectly. We don't have to have it all together, all figured out. Because Jesus freed you and I from the penalty of sin and the failures and selfish moments and shortcomings. Your relationship is based on his faithfulness, not on yours. He knew that this was going to be a one-sided relationship more often than not. So he loved you enough for the both of you. Have you thought about that? 
But he also died because he loves you. And that love, this is the gospel motivation part. If you'll let it, that love will spark something in your heart when we really see it. It makes me want to love him in return when I see how much he's loved me. When I see how much he left and gave up so that he could have me for himself. So that he could walk with me and not let anything get in the way. It motivates my heart. It warms my heart. It changes my heart where the deepest desire of my heart is walking with him, reading his word, praying, letting my faith begin to live out in my life with works. Like James says, faith without works is dead. He also died to empower you to be able to walk with him, to fill you with the Holy Spirit. He died to set you free from the lie that getting to know the God of the universe is somehow routine and boring and mundane. And he died to show you the truth that you are free once and for all to believe that God loves you. He cares. Jesus came to make it possible for you to walk with God. Are you thankful for that? What does that do to your heart when you think about it? I want you to close your eyes for a second. I just want you to picture God. I want to ask you a question to think about. When you look into his eyes, what do you see? Do you see a loving father with warm tears in his eyes desiring you? Wanting to walk with you, wanting more than that, nothing more than that. Wanting a deeper relationship with you than you've ever experienced. Do you see that? Or do you see something else? Do you see judgment? Do you see anger? What do you see in your dad's eyes? I wonder how many of you can say with me today, God, I want to trust you more, I want to grow in my relational trust. I want to build my relationship with you as your gospel motivates my heart, as the Holy Spirit works within me to empower me to walk with you. And I want this all to show up in my life with faithful action. I don't want dead faith. I want an alive and vibrant walk with you. But we know all this is impossible if you won't move in our hearts, God. If you won't place faith there, Hebrews 12, 2, we just read it, said that you are the author, that you are the finisher of our faith. Warm our hearts with your gospel. Draw us to your side. None of us can come to you unless you draw us. But we know that you want nothing more for us than a deeper walk with you. Have your way in our hearts right now. We're going to take communion and they're going to turn on some elevated praise music. And we're going to come up here and, and break this bread and dip it in the cup that symbolizes the life of Jesus lived for you. And he didn't just live this life for you because he had to or because... He was stuck doing it. He lived his life for you because it was worth it to him. What did the scripture say? He endured the cross despising the shame. He lived a perfect life for you in the flesh so that you could be reconciled to dad, so you could have the relationship you've always longed for. And then 
He got on that cross and his blood was poured out to forgive you for every sin, for every failure, for every broken commitment. For every time you said, yeah, I'm going to pray five hours this week. And didn't. You have forgiveness of sins. But you don't just get a clean slate. You get the very righteousness of the God of the universe. And he did it so he could have you to himself. So will you come and accept that today? Will you come and accept his gift of grace, his loving relationship by faith? Will you step out and say, I trust you. I surrender to you. I want nothing more than to walk with you. And and come down in groups, uh, DNA groups, gospel communities, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, however you'd like. If you're a believer, this is for you to come down and resubmit your life to Christ. Is that okay? Let me pray over you one more time. Father, we ask that you would have your way in our hearts. Walking with you is an act we cannot do on our own. We fall short, we fail, but you've made a way where there was no way, and we thank you. Thank you for your great love for us that defines us, that empowers us to to walk with the God of the universe. Call us to your side today, Jesus, and where we've fallen short, help us to confess that and receive faith as we encourage one another around these elements of communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.